Holy God, we thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. Every seven-year-old deserves a superhero. That's just how it is. That's the opening line to the book that the book club read this week. My grandmother asked me to tell you she's sorry. It is shortly followed by a description of grandmothers. Having a grandmother is like having an army. This is a grandchild's ultimate privilege, knowing that someone is on your side always, whatever the details, even when you are wrong, especially then, in fact. A grandmother is both a sword and a shield. Now that reflection on on being a grandparent stood out to all of the members of our church book club earlier this week. Each of the women in the room, with the exception of the one who is nowhere close to being a grandmother, resonated with that special bond that comes when, when you combine those two generations. Scripture has long held the importance of intergenerational relationships and the strengths that come from valuing all of the generations within a family. This is true both for your biological family and who we are as the family of faith. Grandchildren are the crown of the ages, and the glory of children is their parents. Two very specific relationships here, that of children and grandparents and that of children and their parents. Now, indeed, there is something special about being a grandparent, although I have, as I pointed out to you earlier, no firsthand knowledge of this yet. But when I had my first child, my father loved to hold her. He would scoop her up, and he'd lay back in the recliner, and he'd lay her on his chest, and they would sleep for hours. But as all babies do, she eventually got a dirty diaper. And the first time that that happened on his watch, he got the world's biggest smile. And he stood right up and he ceremoniously handed me that baby. And he said, the joy of grandparenting is giving them back when they get messy. Right? Most of you are grandparents. You know this. You've, You've done this. Grandparenting, like almost all of life, has very different stages to it. And the stage that we tend to focus on the most is is that stage when the children are small. Because when we're children, we, we tend to be fortunate enough, most of us, many of us, to have grandparents who are still mentally and physically active. And our only indication that these people who adore us so much are getting old is is those little extra folds of skin under the arms and the crow's feet around the eyes. But other than that, grandparents are just more fun versions of our parents. Then one day down the road, we discover that our grandparents don't move as fast as they used to and that their patience isn't quite what it once was, and and they take forever to eat, and that's why dinner starts at 3.30 in the afternoon. And as things start heading further and 
And further and further down that road, our relationship with them begins to change. And we go from seeing our grandparents as our heroes to recognizing that, that maybe, just maybe, we need to step up and be their heroes. When we examine the proverb today, we can apply it to the first stage of grandparenting, but I want to focus on how it impacts that second stage. That stage when, when the grandparents need the grandkids to step up and, and be the heroes. How grandchildren serve and love and carry their grandparents in those years when the grandparents can't carry themselves, that speaks volumes about what kind of gems the grandchildren really are and what that particular family values or doesn't value about intergenerational relationships. All of those things that are taught in the early years of grandparenting, they get tested in those later years. Because grandparents are often seen as superheroes, grandparents have the potential to be the front line of raising children in the faith, of teaching history, of imparting wisdom. One of the fascinating things about grandparents is that grandparents choose to go to church. Now, let me, let me explain that a little bit. When I was a kid, I went to church because mom and dad made me. This was not an option. It was not negotiable. You're going to do this. And you're going to do it every Sunday. And as a result, mom and dad are going to sit there with you. So my assumption was that, that parents had to go to church because somebody had to make sure that us kids were in church and that we got to Sunday school. But grandparents, grandparents, two rational human beings with no responsibilities or obligations that mandated that they be in church would get up every single Sunday morning get themselves dressed, and show up at church for no other reason other than that they chose to be there. And as I got older, I started to understand that, that this was a choice that they were making and that faith was a choice for them. And it led me into wondering, why? Why? Why did my grandparents do that? There's a million other things that they could do on a Sunday morning. Why? Why church? For each of my grandparents, that reasoning was a little different, but the heart of it was essentially the same. Each one of them came from generations of people of faith, and they had witnessed how that faith had shaped their lives and the values and the relationships of the generations that came before them. They had seen how the hope of the resurrection had sustained their own families through loss and grief, and immigrating to this country. All four of my grandparents lived through the Great Depression, and they had learned firsthand that when nothing else was left, there was always God. I can't remember ever having a dedicated conversation about faith with any of my grandparents, and I think this is really important because I know that one of the greatest burdens that a lot of grandparents have today is, is that they get it in their minds that they need to have a sit-down dedicated conversation with the grandkids where the grandkids fully understand the faith of the family and how it's going to be and what their responsibility and what their role is in that. I didn't have any of that. All I can remember is how my Italian businessman grandfather 
made it a point, whether he was in the Catholic Church or visiting us in the Presbyterian Church, made a point of always putting something in the offering plate. Not a grandiose show. He didn't want everybody to see it, but he made sure that the grandkids witnessed him giving to the church. We saw that. And then when I got a little bit older and I was in middle school and I was having to learn about percentages, that's when my grandfather taught me about tithing to the church. He took an academic lesson and taught me how to apply that to income, which you don't have a lot of when you're 10. But over the years, I learned how to give a percentage because of what he showed me. And I can remember going with my other grandfather to St. Paul's place, which, which was a soup kitchen. And I was so little that the only thing that I could do was pass out the rolls. But I stood next to my grandfather one Saturday, one Saturday Sunday a month, every single month, learning how to demonstrate faith in action. I think my grandparents knew from their own experiences in parenting that sometimes the less you say and the more that you show makes all the difference in how those lessons are received. And grandparents today, people of the grandparent generation, whether or not you have grandkids, are more vital than ever. So important to our world today. History is being rewritten by the second. And even so, it is more engaging to hear from somebody who actually lived it than to read about it without any kind of personal investment. Grandparents give grandchildren a window into a living history. And the history of our country, though fascinating, is nothing compared to the history of our faith. Our faith started from a place of oral tradition. This is why when you go into the Old Testament, you see generation upon generation, and they reflect on that. They talk about how God blessed this generation and then how God blessed this generation, and they tell it from generation to generation on down the road. The story of God's grace handed down. The faith once delivered. In the book of Joshua, when the people are crossing over into the promised land, God says to them, you are going to take 12 boulders from the River Jordan. You're going to carry them out of the Jordan River. You're going to pile them up on the entrance to the promised land. And people were like, why? Why were we going to do that? So that future generations would know of God's faithfulness, how God delivered his people and cared for them. When you do that, when you tell the stories of what God has done in your life, stories of faithfulness and provision, you give a living testimony to the next generation. Today is a great day for us to be talking about the faith that's handed down to us because there is something very, very nerdy and extremely cool that's happening in theology this week. And maybe pastors are the only ones excited about it, but I think it's pretty awesome for us as Presbyterians. This week marks the 500th anniversary of what is known as the Reformation. And our tradition holds that on October 31st, I know you call it Halloween, we call it Reformation Day. On October 31st, 1517, this guy named Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the Wittenberg, Church, Castle, Wittenberg Castle Church. Now, what does that have to do with us? We're 500 years after the fact. 
Well, that single event precipitated what is known as Protestantism. Oftentimes, people will be able to figure out the difference between Christianity and, say, Buddhism, but they can't figure out the difference between, say, being a Catholic and a Protestant. When my daughter was little, she and one of her friends got into this conversation, and um, her friend was asking about church, and, and Anna said, well, I'm a Presbyterian. And her friend thought about that for a second, and she goes, oh, oh, I'm a Christian, right? Right? Because we don't know. We don't know what it is that separates us, that, that makes us different. And, and for the record, in case you are wondering, Presbyterians are Christians. We are. We are Christians. But Protestants, of which we are a part, believe that the Bible is the central religious authority and that humans only reach salvation by our faith, not by our deeds. And this is in contrast to our Catholic brothers and sisters who believe in the authority of the saints and the priests and who hold that their salvation is directly impacted by their work. One of the reasons that Martin Luther wrote the 95 Thesis is because back in the 1500s, Catholic priests were selling indulgences to people. And you could go ahead and you could pay for your sins, both the ones that you'd already committed and the ones that you plan to commit in the future. And... And you could buy your way out of hell and reserve your place in heaven while at the same time funding the building projects of the Catholic Church. Martin Luther felt that that was one of many practices that needed to be reformed. So his declaration on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church was the start of the most major split in church history. And it created who we are as a people of faith today. And there's a value in that. There is a value in who we are, in our identity, in someone, in some activity that happened 500 years ago that still informs who we are and our practice of faith to this very day. Grandparents make deposits into the faith bank accounts of their grandchildren. Just like when most of the grandkids are little, grandparents will set up savings accounts or college accounts or something like that. The minute your grandchild is born, you also set up a faith bank account. And the grandchildren are going to make withdrawals on those accounts when they are faced with some of the challenges of losing that same grandparent. They will withdraw from that account kindness and compassion, the ability to put someone else before themselves. And when that day comes when they lose that beloved grandparent, they will withdraw from that account all of the hope of the resurrection that they were taught by somebody who loved them deeply. Pastor Sung and I have seen as pastors how families that have been intentional in demonstrating and living a vibrant faith, not just talking about it, have been able to carry each other through times of great and extraordinary challenges, such as when a grandparent can no longer care for themselves or when they ultimately pass away. We see that time and time again, their legacy is found in the faith of their grandchildren. Now, the relationship between grandchildren and grandparents is not the only one discussed in this proverb, and we should should look at this other one, too. The other relationship is between children and parents. Scripture says the glory of children is their parents, 
Or to put this another way, children take pride in their parents. Now, folks, let's get real about this. I have a 13-year-old daughter. It is hard for me to be convinced that right now my daughter takes pride in having me as her mom. We just had a middle school dance this week. She stood on one side of the gym. I stood as far away as possible, and apparently it was too close. Just too close. But it's true, isn't it? It's true that, that the wisdom of this proverb has continually been proven by science, by cognitive development. Children look to their parents as their first teachers, role models, spiritual guides. Children need parents, period. And parents need to step up and be parents. Over the years, I've had friends of mine say, I just want to be my kid's friend. No, no, no you don't because your kid is going to have friends. They don't need you to be their friend. They need you to be their parent. And they need to know that, that there is a part of their lives where there is structure and stability and forgiveness and grace and mercy and there's no better place for them to learn that and to live that than in their own home with their parents. Now, I grew up as a teenager who was pretty ashamed of her parents. My mom completed one year of a woman's college back when woman's college meant glorified home economics. My whole life, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. My best friend's mom was an elementary school principal. And I was convinced that she had done something extraordinary with her life and that my mom had just wasted hers. My dad dropped out of college to go to acting school, and when he didn't make it big after 18 months on Broadway, my grandfather pulled him out of New York and forced him to take over the family manufacturing business. I never wanted any of the kids at school to know anything about my parents. And I hated Occupation Day. You know Occupation Day where you bring your parent into school and, and they get to tell everybody what they do? Well, I never understood what my parents did, so I never wanted them to come. And I was always proud of everybody else's parents, but not mine. And it was worse. It was worse when I went to college because I remember getting onto that college campus on that first day for registration, and I had convinced myself that my parents were completely incapable of being on a college campus because they'd never been to college themselves. Well, college taught me a lot of things, but perhaps the most important thing they taught me was how fortunate I was to have parents like mine. You know, when you only have one set of parents and you only grow up in one house, you don't realize that not everybody is raised the same way. And you don't realize that not everybody holds the same values. Once I got out into the world and discovered that not everybody was raised like me, I was really proud of my parents. I had always just assumed that, that everybody was raised with the idea that faith came first, God, then family, then others, that you put yourselves last in service to other people. You've heard me tell stories over the years of how my dad would coach recreational softball and how he was the coach that would take the girls that had Down syndrome or muscular dystrophy or other handicaps that the other coaches wouldn't take because they didn't want that on their team because then they'd, they'd lose the game. My parents cheered for every kid as though they were a rock star. One of the most embarrassing things that my parents ever did that I, I couldn't understand at the time, but that, that I appreciate now as an adult, 
my parents would go to our swim meets and they would stand at the side of the pool and they would scream like wild people until every kid had finished. Not even, not even on races when me or my brother or sister were racing. They'd stand there and they'd cheer for every kid for as long as it took for every single kid to finish the race. As long as the Italianos were around, every kid got out of the pool and had an adult there cheering for them. When my dad died, I was overwhelmed at the number of high school and college classmates, some who had flown in from across the country, who would stop to tell me lengthy, lengthy stories about how my father had impacted their lives and their faith. The man that I had spent so much of my adolescent life being ashamed of because of his lack of a college education taught me just about everything that I know about being a follower of Jesus Christ. So much so that to this day, my heart swells with pride that he was my dad. As we go through different stages of our own lives, we have this tendency to forget that those around us, especially those who are closest to us, they're also going through different stages of their lives. In recent years, more and more of of the boomer generation is finding themselves in a space that they find really uncomfortable. It's that space between caring for aging parents on one side and caring for aging adolescents on the other side. And it is a trying time to be sure. But it is also a great privilege. By being at the center of the family seesaw, those in the middle get to demonstrate for the next generation what it means to be family, to show care and compassion, while at the same time getting to see firsthand that carrying each other is a labor of love and sacrifice. We don't see that when we're kids. We don't see that sacrifice and that labor. But what an opportunity when we get to be in that middle age and we get to experience for ourselves labor and sacrifice of love. Jesus said, let the little children come to me, but he also said, give me your weary and heavy burden. Jesus didn't divide us out on generation. The greatest wisdom for the church in this tiny proverb is that we need each other. Man, do we need each other and we're not a burden to each other we never should be treating each other that way that we're a burden to one another it's not not that we have to that we have to but that we get to carry each other it's not that we have to volunteer for the nursery but that we get to what an extraordinary privilege to be an adult who goes in and nurtures and loves the smallest among us. It's not that we have to sit by the bedside of those who are slipping away from this life. It's that we get to. What an incredible honor it is to hold the hand of the faithful until that moment when you can place their hand into the hand of God. That is sacred space right there and what an incredible privilege it is for the church to get to do that together 
The best studies of scripture and, and discussions of faith, they happen across generational lines because scripture is alive. And it speaks to us fresh every morning. And because of that, the perspectives of a five-year-old and a 95-year-old bring scripture to life in wonderful and beautiful ways. The wisdom that each brings reveals glimpses of glory. And when we segregate ourselves by generation, what happens is that we lose the fullness of the faith that was handed down to us from generations. Both in families of origin and in the church family, there are going to be moments, there's going to be full seasons where it feels like it would just be so much easier if each generation would just divide up, do their own thing, leave each other alone. But the truth is, we need each other. We were created to love and care for each other, even in difficult and painful seasons. And let me tell you, raising a toddler, that's a difficult and painful season. Caring for an aging parent, difficult and painful season. Midlife crisis, difficult and painful season. All of us are going to have those difficult and painful seasons, so we don't have enough time to divide ourselves by category. Because we need each other. And we can look to Jesus for the best guidance on how to do that. There's this moment on the cross. On the cross, which by the way, wasn't reserved just for those of us in 55 plus communities. Wasn't reserved just for those of us in nursery school. Jesus went to the cross for everybody. But there's this moment on the cross where he's looking at us. He's going to die for all of us. And in those moments, he secures the connection between the generations by looking at his mother and looking at the beloved disciple, and he says, this is your mother, this is your son, take care of each other. Jesus had that in mind that we needed to carry each other, not because we have to, but because we get to, even as he carried the weight of all of the generations to the cross. Let's pray together. God, we confess that oftentimes we, we want to separate by generation. We want to make judgment calls about those who are not like us. We want to pass on our guidance and wisdom without receiving it from the other side. Lord, help us to be a church that values all generations, not just in words, but in how we treat each other, how we support each other, how we serve each other. Help us to love each other well. In your name we pray. Amen.